Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, something that was brought to my attention when I returned from Quebec was the fact that due to absolutely my oversight, we have never had a full episode with Melody Desjardins, somebody who's been working with us for a couple of years now, has an amazing blog, does just incredible work, and we have not had a full episode. So this episode is going to be a little different, not the typical interview that I do on the show. Uh, with somebody who I've only talked to uh, a little bit, usually before, or very little, I should say, beforehand. This time, we're going to feature Melody, give kind of her story, what she's up to. Melody, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Bonsoir, Jesse. <laughs> Bonsoir. <laughs> yeah, well, Ooh. right now, anyway, but bonjour to everybody <laughs> listening to this in the morning of its release. That's right. Bonsoir. Uh, but it is obviously going to be fun to tell you. So let's get your story before we do too much further. So where are you from originally? And how did you end up associated with the French Canadian Legacy podcast? So it's kind of a long story, but I'm used to giving it by now. I love it. Um, I'm originally from Wilton, New Hampshire. Um, and when I was three, being in a military family, we moved around. So when I was three, we picked up and we went to San Antonio, Texas. And my dad worked as chief of microbiology at Brook Army Medical Center wow. in San Antonio. So we lived there on the army base for three years. And then when I was six, we moved to Iowa because my dad wanted to get back into teaching and he got a job up there. So it's, that's why we moved. It, it's all my dad's fault. So oh, <laughs> no, there I'm, you go. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so that's how I ended up in Iowa. Cause I'm always asked, well, how did, how did your family end up in Iowa? If you're from New Hampshire, which valid question, it's quite <laughs> a ways away. You don't, see it, you don't see it very often, right? Yeah. It's quite a ways away. Um, but yeah, so I mostly grew up in Southern Iowa, um, but I grew up always loving New Hampshire. I always wanted to come back here when I was a real adult so now okay. I, I've been back here for a few years now, and I, I love New Hampshire. It's, it's the best state, in my opinion. So that's a bit of my background. Yeah, that's your background. But okay, so how did you end up with getting in touch with this crazy group, meeting me and Mike? Oh, yes. Well, it's a day full of regret. Um, <laughs> sure. No, no. Yeah, so I'd lived in New England for a bit after college. I lived in Portland, Maine. I lived in Boston. And then after that, couldn't really find a job in Boston. So I had to move back home being Iowa. Uh, so I went back home and I had all, I, I had all of this time. I didn't have a job right away. And I was just giving myself a break from school and working. And so I decided, okay, I have all these hobbies that I like to do. Let me take the time to just do what I want for a little while. Sure. while I'm at home. And I ended up diving back into um, ancestry work that I had been doing since I was a teenager. I really got into genealogy when I was um, in cool. high school. And so I knew of my parents' 
backgrounds and sure. growing up, we had always known about that. Um, and we were just raised, we just knew it. And it was interesting because where I grew up, I grew up in an area where a lot of people didn't know their background or they really didn't care. Sure. And that's fine too. Yeah, absolutely. And so when I was back home, I started diving back into the ancestry stuff again. So that really got, got me jump started on getting into Franco-American things and looking into my other background. So I thought it was interesting that I would look up things about my dad's German side and his um, English, Welsh, Australian side. And I could find all sorts of information about his side and those cultures and what they do and just different communities and clubs that are around um, German American clubs, stuff like that. Sure. And so when I would look for the Franco American version of that stuff, I couldn't find anything. And I thought that was really weird. So I, I tried searching around. And when I was a teenager too, I was always going on the internet, trying to find anything Franco American. I could barely find anything and sure. nothing had changed even a few years back when I was at home. So I kept giving up and then I would get it inspired and I would start searching again and then I couldn't really find much. I could mostly just find these blogs that were obviously abandoned uh, that had very limited information, uh, walls of text, so it was hard sure. to read. <laughs> Somehow would have this bright background and the text would be so small. And yes, yeah, so that's how I found myself back into trying to find this Franco-American stuff. Sure. Growing up when you hear you're of French heritage, you automatically think France. Right. Yeah. So when I was 12, I had to do this family tree project. And if we knew our heritage, we could talk about that too. Sure. And I knew that my dad's side was German and my grandmother was from Australia. And on my mom's side, I knew that they were French, but I was looking for a little more information about that. So I asked her uh, specifically, what are we? Like, how would I say that we're what just a French heritage and that's it. And she said, well, we're Franco-American, which means that we're descendants of French Canadians who came down to the U S yeah. and so I was like, oh, okay, that's really interesting. And I looked that up and that was the first time I'd ever heard Franco-American. And from then on, uh, that's, you know, I would search online, Franco-American, Franco-American, and sure. not much, not, not a whole lot would come up. So back to how I found French Canadian Linksy podcast. Right. I, the highlight of the story. Yes. The highlight of this rambling story, <laughs> the highlight of the story. Yeah. So living at home and I was looking around for more Franco-American information. And I thought, I wonder if there's any podcasts out there. And so I opened Apple Podcasts, and I started looking around, and I found Maple Stars and Stripes. Gotcha, yeah. Uh, Sandra Goodwin. And awesome so I started podcast, seeing, absolutely. Yeah. That, was, that was the forerunner of all our, we got a few of us now, but she was first, for sure. Yeah, so I started listening to her podcast. I thought, oh, I finally found something. I think I only found her because I searched French Canadian. I didn't, I couldn't find anything if I typed in Franco-American, but French Canadian brought up Maple Stars and Stripes. So I started listening to her podcast and I, and I learned a lot that I'd never even heard of, like the Fidiwa. I never yeah. heard that before ever. I asked my mom if she had heard of the Fidiwa and she said no. And she grew up 
um, very immersed in French Canadian, Franco American culture in Nashua. She was kind of in what she would consider a little Canada in Nashua, and she had nice. never even heard of the Fiji oh, Wall. Wow. Cool. And so I started listening to this podcast, listened to, I don't even know how many episodes, but I learned a lot from it. And then I thought, okay, I wonder if there's anything else like this out there. I wonder, is there another podcast or a, a show <laughs> or anything? And my mom had told me, well, I remember that there's a Franco-American center in Manchester. So maybe look them up and see if they have anything. So I found them on Facebook. Then I scrolled down and I had I had seen that the Franco-American Center shared the French-Canadian Legacy podcast in a post. And I thought, well, here we go. Interesting. Here's another one. So I started listening to French-Canadian Legacy podcast. I don't know how many episodes you had out, but uh, maybe like four or yeah, five was, episodes. Yeah, right. It was still fairly early on. Yeah, it was still early on. And so I thought, oh, awesome. You know, I started listening. I really liked it. And then I typed up this long email because I was like, I have to find these people. So I had seen that you guys had just kind of gotten started. But at the time, um, I was thinking, oh, man, these guys, they're the big time. I got to contact them. (laughs) Yeah. um, uh, Because I was still I was trying to get into journalism at that time. So I thought, oh, maybe they can offer me an internship or something. And so, and I wanted to contact you guys anyway, because I was so shocked that somebody had started something new. And so, yeah, I typed up my long email and I sat on it for a few days because I thought I typed it up and then I thought, oh, they're not going to care. They're not going to respond. You know, they're just doing this thing. They don't have the time to respond to me. (laughs) I sat on it for like two or three days. And then I finally just said, okay, just send it. So I sent it out. And then I got a response um, from Mike pretty quickly. And then I got a response from you. He he still has that email, by the way. Yeah, he still has. He likes to bring that up. (laughs) And he he wants to read the entire thing to everybody. But (laughs) at the time, my excitement um, at finding other other people that are, are interested in this. So yeah, I know I, I kind of typed up a bit of my life story in that one, but I was just so excited to find other sure. people who were interested in the French Canadian and Franco-American stuff. So that's how, and we stayed in contact. And right. when I moved back to New Hampshire, we had the legendary Dunkin' Donuts meeting the, in Manchester. The, life, the life-changing Dunks meeting at the Greenwich Street Dunkin Donuts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Life changing. So, uh, yeah, so that's how I found French Canadian Legacy podcast. And then you ended up taking over the news segment. Yeah. So you had told me that you wanted a news segment and I was still trying to get journalism at the time. And I thought, oh, that would look really good with a portfolio. And so and I and I, I was fine doing it anyway. I wanted to help out in some way. I didn't think I would ever do anything of my own with Franco-American stuff. Sure. I just thought I would help people out with what I could do and that would be it. Yeah. I, uh, I remember so- being like, uh, cause originally I was attending to go to Quebec the year before I did. And I just knew that I probably could not do the news while I was up there. Cause I had been doing it before that. 
And I was like, I'm not going to be able to get this done while I'm up there for sure. So we got to find somebody else to do the news. So I remembered the life-changing dunks meeting. You were into journalism. I said, let's give Melody a shot. And frankly, if it's garbage, no big deal. Michael will just never air it and we'll go in a different <laughs> direction. But you ended up crushing it and you've been doing it since. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I know. The first time I recorded one, I was very nervous. Uh, I, it took quite a few tries to get that one. But, um, yeah, I know. I, I'm surprised I've been doing it for as long as I have now. So ended up never getting into journalism, but <laughs> that's okay. I, I'm in marketing now and I like it a lot better anyway. But uh, yeah, it's still, it, I still like doing journalism type things. So I have continued to do the news. There you go. And you continue to do tons of writing as well. So did you start, first of all, did you start your podcast first or did you start doing work for the podcast that Tim has going? Another podcast, the uh, the blog, the site, the website, excuse me, the French, my French Canadian family, which came first? Because I know you did a bunch of stuff with them too. Oh yeah. Which, which, which did come first? Oh, um, so it was around the same time? Is that what it was? Yeah. Probably around the same time. I remember I started doing the French Canadian news segment in January, 2020. Right. Cause I was supposed I, to be leaving that year. Right. Yeah. And I believe it was a few months later. I wrote something for my French Canadian family. Very cool. Um, Tim and Tim and Luke's site. Super interesting. Yeah. Right? yeah, and remember, yeah. You got a lot was the Lewis and Clark post. I remember it got a lot of run and a lot of chat. That was very cool. How did that come about? Yeah, so uh, Timothy Bullier messaged me, and he said, I really like what you're doing with uh, the Franco-American Center because I'd written a few blog posts for them. And he said, you know, check out my blog. Would you write something for it? And I said, yeah, sure. So he gave me this idea that he wanted to do with the French Canadians in the time of Lewis and Clark. And I had never heard this story. I never could even imagine that there were French Canadians all throughout the U.S. at that time. <laughs> like where you grew up? Yeah, I never even came to my mind. Um, so it was a very interesting project. I really read up on that history. He had sent me some articles. And when I first wrote it up, it was just a rehashing of it. And I thought, this is so boring. <laughs> so I typed, <laughs> I typed a message to him and I said, can you help me with this? I don't, I don't really know what I'm, what you're expecting out of this. And he said, make it just funny, relaxed, chill. And I said, okay. So I redid it and it became the article that it is now. Um, added some comedy to that. Yeah. It was really fun to write. And then later I did a Fidiwa article for him um, that a lot of people didn't know was satire when yeah. that title was clearly satire. Yes. And we could definitely post those with the links to this episode for sure. Because I thought that especially the the one that kind of put you on the map for a lot of people with that Lewis and Clark was hilarious. I thought it was one of the funnier things. I remember telling Mike, I'm like, we got we got plenty of people who are doing like uh, the history stuff, right? You got people, serious historians with very, very interesting blog. Obviously the stuff Patrick LaCroix does is amazing. We have that, 
But now it was a very new, very fresh voice coming from a dip, completely different perspective who happened to write hilarious stuff. So it was awesome. It was very, very cool to see that. So that was awesome. You still going to do stuff with them? Yeah. So I've been wanting to write something for my French Canadian family again. It's just, I, I didn't have any ideas and, you know, life just gets busy. And I it just had a very chaotic move this fall and but I'm getting I'm getting back out there I love writing those comedic things I used to be a big time reader of cracked.com in college before Netflix had binge watch streaming I was binge reading cracked.com awesome and I would just go article after article and my favorite ones actually were the history ones and I would just spend hours reading those because they were fun to read you learned something and they were just hilarious. And so that's where that inspiration came from. But yeah, it's a fun style to write in uh, when I need a break from something more serious or something where I have to do a ton of research. It's nice to just fall back and just write something that's comedic. Yeah, it's very cool from the reader's perspective. Like I said, we have the stuff Patrick's doing, which is great. James Miles always done amazing stuff. Um, David Vermette had a blog going. That was one of the first things I saw that got me involved. But just to see where you're coming from is completely different. I think it's awesome. So how did this end up becoming your own show with your own blog? How did that all come about? So when I was living at home, I know this timeline must be so confusing to people listening. I'm so sorry. There's just a lot of moving around. But when I was still living at home, this was 2017 to early 2019. In that time, I had thought of doing some type of blog, but I wasn't sure what it would be about. I thought, okay, I want to put all my writing somewhere, but I don't exactly know where, or I don't exactly know what. So I had set up a blog. I'd wanted to start a blog about New Hampshire when I moved back here. And so when the day came that I moved back up to New Hampshire in summer 2019 packed up my car drove back up here that's a heck of a drive oh yeah but it was fun it was a great adventure by great yourself soul. yeah i went solo yep great nice. solo adventure how many so, stops uh, oh i don't remember i took my time i took my sweet time so, yeah so you spent quite a few nights yeah on the road it that's probably awesome. took me probably took me three nights gotcha when I did get back to New Hampshire, I was thinking about this blog that I was going to do about New Hampshire. And then as I got a job together, I found an apartment and I started getting a little bit more involved with the Franco-American stuff uh, with you and Mike and uh, Timothy Boyer and kind of, they were introduced, you guys introduced me to more people. And so I was writing for the Franco-American Center I started thinking, I wonder if I could do my own thing with the Franco-American realm. And so I started thinking, maybe I'll do a blog, maybe not. I don't know. And I just started to think maybe I would be more interested in writing about Franco-American topics rather than things about New Hampshire, just getting more involved in the Franco-American things. Sure. So I remember I had started thinking up what am I going to call it you can't just have a blog without a name so I started jotting down anything I could think of I was trying to think of something punny 
everything I can. Do you have any examples? I, we need some examples of names that you chose not to. Address. No, no. I mean, that would make for an awesome bonus question if you could just uh, give us a couple of names that you had written down on that piece of paper. Your punny French I, names. I should have kept that piece of paper. I don't know. Where it <laughs> yeah, I don't know where it went. It had it had all of the names that I had thought of, and I only remember one of them. But I'm not saying it. It's, it's absolute cringe. No, it's, be great. <laughs> it's just it's be the highlight it's of the stupid, podcast. Funny. That's it's the, not that's, good. That's why. That's why you should tell us. But I I could not think of a name for a while, and I was looking up all sorts of different words in French and trying to make something of it and I just began thinking well I want to write about present day stuff but inspired by the past so I thought okay well you know words for the present include modern and I was like okay modern something and then I thought oh what if I did modern with an e yeah and then I thought oh Franco's is a nice little nickname for Franco-Americans so I thought, oh, Modern Franco's, and I Modern Franco's was born. Light bulb went off. That was my <laughs> name at that moment. I, you know, I wrote that down on that piece of paper, and I said, "That's the name." And it took me a few more months to really get the blog going because I didn't know what I was doing. So I took an online class that helped me with WordPress. That's I was awesome. actually using a different. Yeah, your website's amazing. I know. I've been, Thank you, Mike. I've been talking about. I have this conversation because I don't know anything whatsoever about <laughs> doing a web page or anything technical, but I remember going to Mike and be like, yeah, we got to somehow find a way to make our stuff look more like melodies because your stuff's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, I, I took an online WordPress course. So that's how I got my blog going. And I wrote a few short, really short articles just to get started. And then I remember I shared it with you and Tim Boyer and you both were excited about it. And then November of 2020, I finally launched it. I wasn't sure if a lot of people would like it or not, uh, sure. but no, it, it's gotten really good reception. So I'm really happy about that. That Yeah. I mean, it's awesome. But how did you become Melody Desjardins? Where did, where, why did you, first of all, choose to become and when did that happen? Yeah. So obviously if you know me, you know that my name is not actually Desjardins. It's Kylie. Yeah. It's a German name, right. strong German name. <laughs> and so that comes back from my dad's side in Wilton. And um, so my mom grew up in French Canadian, Franco-American community in Nashua. And so her maiden name was Deshane. And growing up, I loved that name. And I would write my name as Melody Deshane. And I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to be a photographer and I would go on Microsoft Word and I would make business cards and I would put, I would put Melody Deshane, sometimes Mel Deshane, because my family just calls me Mel. Mike and I need to start doing that. Yeah, just Microsoft Word, nothing else. So just referring to you only as Mel. Oh, no, no, no. It's just what my family calls me. <laughs> but no, yeah, I would go on Microsoft Word as a kid. I would make these business cards for my photography business that I dreamed of having. And I would put my name as Mel DeShane. And I thought that's going to be my name someday. <laughs> Other times, though, I would write as I got more into ancestry as a teenager, I found my meme's maiden name, which was Desjardins. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that is such a beautiful name. I love that. I would write my name out like that Melody Desjardins. And right. <laughs> I thought, what a beautiful name that would be. And nice so that's where the inspiration came from. Because when I started my blog, I did write under Melody Kylig for a little while. And it just didn't quite click with me. I don't hate my name at all. And, right. you know, I take pride in my German side, of course. But there was just something about Kylig. It just didn't quite mesh with Franco-American topics, in my sure. opinion. And of course, you know, you don't have to have a French-Canadian surname to be Franco-American or to do this. Right. And so I just, but I just thought a French-Canadian surname would be a little more fitting with the blog covering Franco-American topics. So for a while, I thought that I would use Deshane, and then I just kept getting drawn back to Desjardins. And I didn't, I think that's just because I feel really close to my meme. Cool. And I, growing up, I really didn't get to see her that often. The last time I saw her, I was 12 years old. And then oh, wow. she, passed, she passed away later that year. We would go up to New Hampshire during the summers to visit family on both sides. Sure. And we would always go to Nashua. We would go to Meme's. My Pepe had passed away when I was born. So I never met him. Well, I met him, but I don't remember that, of course. Right. But so we would go visit Meme and I didn't get to develop that deep of a bond with her. She was just somebody that I knew was Meme that I visited when we were in New Hampshire. And then I would talk to her on the phone. We were home in Iowa, but she would, she had a bit of a French Canadian accent. I love it. Her first language was French. Same thing with my Pepe. He spoke French growing up. They didn't learn English until they were probably between eight and 10 years old. They learned it in school. Sure. At home, it was always, they were always speaking French. So they each had a bit of an accent. And I always remember thinking my meme talked a little bit differently than people I knew in Iowa. Sure. And in my mind, I knew it was because she spoke French growing up, but... I don't know. It just seemed, it was just completely normal for me. It just seemed very American and I didn't think anything of it. And I remember that was when I was about 11 or 12, I tried Gatan and I had never heard of it before that. And uh, I remember she had this old Tupperware, this gray, gray paste in it. And she said, Oh, do you want to try this? And I said, what is that? (laughs) What is that? And she said, Oh, it's Gatan. She had to repeat it a few times. I'd never heard of it. And so I tried it out on a saltine cracker and I was a very picky eater at the time. But when Meme gives you food, you eat it. So I ate there you it. Go. I, I thought it was all right. <laughs> yeah, I grew up with that stuff. We would get that in our, my sis and I would have that in our lunchbox when we'd go to school, a gaton sandwich, it, which is funny because I don't know how you had it, but for us, it was always with just plain yellow mustard. You get your gaton, you get your plain yellow mustard. And that's it does I'll, otherwise on everything else in the entire world, I get like my Dijon mustard or my super spicy mustard or my grain mustard, whatever. But with a gaton, it always has to be just plain, boring yellow mustard. Pretty awesome. actually, you spoke with Matt Preventure. I spoke, I don't even know if it was made it to the podcast, but we definitely talked about that with Matt Preventure. How same thing with him, he just saw the chef who's one of the back to back who's in fest. Uh, yeah, same thing with him. He just always has a plain yellow mustard, which I think is funny. Uh, yeah, I didn't have it enough. 
I just had it plain. Sure. Right. But my meme mentioned, oh, you can have it on toast with mustard, yeah. just plain mustard. <laughs> and so, yeah, some of my, uh, my family on the Franco-American side, they eat it the same way That's on awesome. crackers or toast with plain mustard. So that was definitely a tradition on the Franco-American <laughs> side. I just, growing up, I just didn't ex- get to experience yeah. that much. My mom didn't make French Canadian foods because she found them too heavy and my dad didn't really like them. So we grew up on a very standard American diet. Gotcha. Well, where do you get your ideas for the posts you make? So I get inspired by my family's Franco-American history, but also just bits of Franco-American history in general. Sure. So I try to connect that history with something that we can learn today and so I go back and I find things to make those connections with us. Sure. Like the one I had written about the mill girls right. and the working mothers. Which I, I really found appreciated. Out, yeah. Yeah. I had found out that my meme worked in a cotton mill in Nashua and I never knew that before. Yeah. Um, her and you one know. of her sisters had worked there. How old was she when she started? Oh, I really don't know. But I know that as I said in the post i know that she left school at 14 yeah that's probably around the same time yeah my grandmother did yeah my my grandmother finished eighth grade and then went straight to the mills yeah so my meme left school had to take care of her siblings because she was uh see she had six siblings so she and i believe she was one of the oldest so she Yeah. yeah she's one of the oldest so she had to take care of them and then when she was in the mills probably in her 20s maybe I don't exactly know too much about that unfortunately my my Franco-American side for some reason uh Meme and Pepe didn't really keep records of a lot of things that they did um they probably just thought it wasn't that important so they did they they didn't take a lot of they didn't take down a lot of information that would have been helpful for me now but that's okay that was a Um, very 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 cool post thank you yeah, so I, t- I take inspiration from certain figures of the past or a story that I can connect to today, something with my meme, which is another reason why I chose her maiden name to use for my blog. Now, I, I want to ask, because you've done a couple of different posts dealing with fashion. You got more than one dealing with some. Where did this idea come from? What gets you super hyped to want to tell the Franco fashion story. Growing up in my research, I could easily find German American festivals, Oktoberfest. They would always be decked out in these amazing costumes or traditional clothing. And I always thought that was so interesting. In Iowa, there's a small city called Pella, and it's a very Dutch city. The Dutch immigrants started, founded the town. And to this day, they still celebrate their Dutch heritage and they all get decked out in the costumes, the dancing, the children of that city actually learn dancing in public school. Very cool. They learn traditional Dutch dancing. And so this town's very proud of their Dutch heritage and in their Dutch history. And about half the town is not even of Dutch heritage, but they love it so much because it brings uh, just something special about that city. And when you walk in that city, it's as if you're in Holland. The buildings look like um, that 
kind of style and that's awesome they have some windmills around like it's sure. the, the tulips in the spring of course very nice so i found inspiration from those sources and when i would search for something like that with franco-americans or french canadians i couldn't find anything there was really nothing this costume or this traditional wear is french canadian or franco-american but i could easily find that for all these other cultures and I thought, well, why don't we have anything like that? Because that's something that I find very interesting. And I'm just a more artistic, creative person. So I was trying to think of a way to bring that to our community. And there, I mean, there already is a traditional dress and costumes of French Canadians. You just have to go back in history and search a bit. But yeah, you can find, especially the winter stuff. The yeah. winter stuff is what we're good at. There you go. <laughs> Makes sense. We're all the way up north here and we're always yeah. freezing cold. So I found quite a bit of information on that, on the winter wear. So wanted to write about that because I don't, I hadn't seen anybody else write, writing about that. Yeah. That's what makes the blog awesome. Thank you. You write about a bunch of stuff nobody else is talking about. Now, Kim, if I wanted to say me, Mike, Tim, we wanted to get together. Have a party. I'll wear a traditional dress. Is there a place like? Can he, Can we even buy it? Well, I think well, with the post that I, my latest post oh. about the the winter. Oh. Well, we can talk about the latest post for sure. Yeah, the winter festivals. I mean, when I created my own costumes for that, that's just stuff that I had in my closet. Right, and you did like a little fashion show. I did. Just pictures of yourself. I know. I noticed you didn't ask me or Mike to do any posing for you but that's cool maybe, ne- <laughs> maybe next time well, i mean i'm not going to my closet unless you want pictures of oh this is jesse in a black hoodie this is jesse in a gray hoodie there's not, not gonna be a lot to choose from but yeah no that's very who'd you have to take the pictures uh, oh I me i i did all of that so you just set a camera yeah i have a tripod oh uh, that's cool yeah i mean back in the day when i was really into photography and i had a professional sure. camera i had a tripod i still have it to this day set up my tripod i don't have my camera anymore i sold it a few years ago but i used my phone and i took the pictures and then and it's in this little nice area that is right where my apartment is so i just walked out took some pictures walked back in so like you were you were kind of showing how you were inspired in the festival post by traditional festival clothing and how you can make that same kind of thing work with stuff you already have. Yeah, I'm big into upcycling clothing and I know a little bit of sewing. I've made a few things myself, just a big opponent of working with what you have, wearing what you have, and then getting rid of it when it's completely worn out. I'm not into just buying things just to buy things. Uh, I like to really get my use out of everything first. And so I think you can find all of this stuff that's just in your closet. I mean, I didn't have some of the traditional wear that I talked about in the post, but just as a basic start. So I broke down the the different features that I found in these costumes in Canada of these winter Voyager festivals and carnival in Quebec. 
And there are distinct patterns with it. So that's what I would consider traditional dress or a, co- a traditional costume is when a cultural event has something repetitive, distinct, similar patterns, similar textures, similar materials, that kind of thing, a similar look. Mm-hmm. So that was my inspiration behind that. Yeah, I, I need one of those crazy long coats with a cool guy scarf belt thing. I thought that was cool. I, I've never <laughs> seen anything like that before. So. Yeah, I know. I've been trying trying to say trying to think of how to say that i should have looked that up the the coats are capo capos and the belts the belts i honestly don't put this in i honestly don't know how to say that yeah okay oh the centaur fleche something like that i have no idea if i'm coming anywhere close and i spent six months yeah so i didn't see anybody else writing about this stuff. And I just, it's stuff that I just find is really interesting is how different cultures dress and how they express themselves in that way. And I think that nowadays, a lot of people are just into dressing very, very down, very dressed down and casual. And that's completely okay. We all dress like that, but I prefer to dress myself up when I go out. I like to look nice. When you're out of the town, yeah. When I'm out on the town. So <laughs> yeah, I love to dress up nicely. I like to put my best foot forward when I go out into the world. And so you will never see me leaving my apartment in sweatpants ever. So <laughs> I got you. So I'm just into really seeing clothing as something not shallow but just distinct and artistic very cool yeah so i want to bring that to our realm over here because yeah i could look up and growing up in iowa there's all sorts of german american festivals there's Oktoberfest everywhere right and we all have the picture in our head of what people wear Mm -hmm. to those kind of things 100 percent. yeah and because of that people distinctly know that this is a German festival or it's a Dutch festival. So I'd like to bring that to the French Canadian Franco-American community so that we can be a bit more distinct because a lot of people are visual and the history is very important. The language is very important, but I think something that's missing is a lot of creativity and a a lot of artistic expression. So that's oh, something that's that I'm cool. trying to bring to all of this. See, I, I remember I'm like reading that post because you're hundred percent right. I think that'd be super cool. We just had some sweet outfit that we could wear to festivals and people instantly recognize it as being our festival because we have our sweet outfits. But I'm like this blanket coat. It's like a big coat, long coat. I'm like, we're, I'm not wearing that in July. That's not going to work. So you got to find another time. Maybe with the uh, Sinfest move to October, find a way to pull out our blanket coats and our cool centaur cliche belt type things. That'd be way fun. You can find out where to buy one, though. Or we could just organize a festival in winter. (laughs) We could, just for fun. I like that. Mm -hmm. We should should, do it in Mike's backyard. Yeah. Just decide to have a big party. All wear costumes. Yeah, so far, yeah, so far I can only really find distinct winter 
costumes okay. for French Canadians, which makes sense, of course. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll have to uh, work on the spring, summer, and fall collections. So I'll be back with that. Nice. Yeah, I think it might not be enough time left in winter to pull it off now, but random get-together outside somewhere in funny costumes next year, I think would be amazing. Mm -hmm. That'd be so cool. Obviously, you have Tim, like Tim's row down, my sis could come down. Hopefully, Luke, Jean-Philippe can come down from Quebec, get Patrick down. Oh, man. If we all shut up with our silly outfits and I'm volunteering Mike's backyard, he's got a ton of space. That would be so fun. That'd be way, way cool. Yeah. And well, that's the thing. Like, it doesn't have, you know, it's not silly or it can be, of course. Well, but it's we, just we'll the, probably make it silly. Enough drinks that I'll become silly. Oh, yeah. We'll make, we can make it silly. But the thing is, is that I think a lot of people cast aside fashion and style and clothing as something that's shallow and stupid or it's, I mean, what, you know, why, why is this interesting? Why is this necessary? But I think it could really help visually I love it. to show who we are as a culture because our ancestors did have this distinct dress that they wore as all of the other cultures of the world. So I, I think it, it would help. I think to, it's a great idea. Yeah, I think it would help to get us no, more noticed out sure. as a distinct culture. Very cool. All right. So before we go, I definitely got to talk about some other things that you have been involved with besides just the amazing blog. You were one of the first, um, well, part of the first group that presented at the first ever Youth Summit, which I think was very cool. So how did you get involved with that? And what was that experience like for you? That was something that I had dreamed of happening for so long. So uh, me, Daniel Moreau of Dawson and Dawson Revisited, and Patrick Lacroix of Queer of the Past, yeah. and a few others got together and we were talking about having a resemble mob, but for younger people. So 1835. Right. And so we had talked about organizing this thing. And because there's a lot of no disrespect to anybody who's older than that. It's just... <laughs> like, like the two people you work with on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> disrespect to me and Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Those old millennials. <laughs> That's right. Or Gen Xers. Um, yeah. No, with no disrespect to anybody <laughs> older than that. It's just, there's a lot of experiences and stories that let's say 40 and older have experienced that we haven't being in our 20s and 30s. Something that we hear from the older crowd a lot is that we don't speak French fluently. But the thing is, we never grew up speaking it, most of us anyway, right. never grew up speaking it fluently. We never heard it spoke fluently. Our parents never passed that down to us. So my mom speaks some of it, but she never passed that down because she grew up in a time when English was pretty much being spoken normally in her little Canada section of Nashua. And she remembers thinking, well, why do I need French when everyone speaks English? So she was, she grew up in that time of 
you know, French was kind of seen as why would we hold on to this? What's so special about it? So we never grew up with it. And being away from Meme, Meme lived in Nashua, we lived in Iowa. I didn't really get that experience of growing up with somebody who did speak it fluently. And where we grew up in Iowa, I mean, if you say French Canadian or Franco American, people are looking at you like they don't, they don't know what that means. Which is crazy because there's definitely tons of Franco Francos mm-hmm. in that area. Yeah, there's plenty of cities in Iowa like Des Moines that are yeah. French. But a lot of people out there, they either don't know of their French background or they just don't care or they're just not of their not of French. There's a lot of Dutch and Germans out there. And so that disconnect between the young and old caused us to think up of an event called the Young Franco-American Summit. And all credit goes to Daniel Moreau, Susan Panette, Lisa Desjardins Michaud. They did an amazing job pulling off. They hosted it at Franco-American Center in Orono, Maine. So they they pulled all the strings. They got everything set up and it was a great time. It was really interesting to see so many people our age, 20s and 30s, in the same room, either Franco-American or they're there because they're interested in the culture. And it was a really great time. Everybody connected really well right away. I think it helped that we were in the same age range. So we felt that we could just approach each other so much easier than approaching people who are much older than us. Yeah, that's cool. I just think me, Mike, and Tim, we can have our own slightly too old to be invited to this party. Well, Patrick was aged out too. So Patrick's going to be part of it. Yeah, he can come join the group of slightly, just just too old enough to not be able to attend this this party. No, that'd be cool. No, that's awesome. Yeah, we talked a lot about that program. I'm really glad that it came together. I did also need to talk about, because it just was on uh, New Hampshire Chronicle, which is kind of fun. The Franco Foods was featured on New Hampshire Chronicle, and you had some a Franco Foods episode. So how did that come about? Yeah, so Natalie of the Franco American Center contacted me sometime last year and said, do you want to do an episode? And I said, oh, of course. I just thought it was so interesting that she was taking something like cooking and baking and making that something to add to all the Franco-American, French-Canadian things. And I also love to cook. I love to bake. So I was definitely interested in that. And I never grew up eating tortillere. As I had said before, I didn't really grow up on French-Canadian foods at all. (laughs) And so that was a new one for me. And I don't eat meat and I stay away from animal products as well. Um, So I pretty much eat vegan and I am unfortunately gluten intolerant. So she said, I would really like to try to do recipes where we considered food allergies or just special diets. So that's why she was interested in talking with me because well, I eat gluten-free and yeah, I, I can't imagine there's a ton of traditional Franco American French Canadian gluten-free vegan options now. Yeah. So I, I definitely stood out a bit. <laughs> so <laughs> she said, why don't we try to do a tortillere? And I thought, you know, yeah, that that's great. It's a pretty simple recipe. So that would be an easy one to convert to a special diet. It is the best known, which is for sure. Yeah, of course. It, very well known. Every winter we see everybody's tortillere <laughs> everywhere. 
And so, yeah, I, I went over there and we made, made that the, the crust fell apart. That wasn't the, the best gluten-free crust, but it's just with gluten-free cooking, it's trial and error. You just have to keep figuring different things out, but yeah, it, it turned out pretty well. I was um, surprised by the outcome. I wasn't sure how that would come out, but I think we were both pleased with it. You guys going to check out the episode. Yeah, Mike, we can link that down so they could find out what they actually use for the stuffing mm-hmm. in a gluten-free vegan tortier, which seems backwards, but it's it's a fun episode. I definitely check yeah. it out. All right. So one other thing I definitely need to mention this has been cool. We've just been chatting for like an mm-hmm. hour, which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but one thing I want to mention is you are involved in a project that I am very, very fortunate to be involved in myself. And I'm super hyped about it. And that is the French All Around Us book, which is very, very cool. So tell how, how you got hooked up with that, how you wrote your chapter and kind of what we could expect when that book comes out in March to see what the Melody Desjardins chapter is about in that book. Yeah, so I had seen that Kathleen Stein Smith was looking for entries for this book, well, chapters for this book. And I was interested right away in writing something. I wasn't sure quite what, but when I had read what she was looking for, some inspiration ideas, I thought, okay, let me try to think about this and write something out uh, because I don't speak fluent French and I grew up a bit disconnected from the Franco-American, French-Canadian area of New England. And growing up, it took a long time for me to discover all of this because growing up in Iowa, none of this was around me. I read like what they were looking for, for chapters. And I thought, all right, well, let me just tell my story of what I grew up in. And so I talked about growing up in Iowa and knowing some French words and having kids at school asking me, what, what are you saying? What are you talking about? Because I would talk about my meme, thinking right. that everybody else had a meme. I mean, they why should. wouldn't you? You should have a meme, absolutely. <laughs> and I remember at school, I, w- I would say something about talking to my meme on the phone. I can't wait to visit my meme this summer in New Hampshire. And these kids would ask me, what are you talking about? And I would have adults at school asking me, what are you talking about, Melody? <laughs> and I had, I would just, my meme. Yeah. What do you mean? What am I talking about? I, you know, so I would say some French words and that I thought were just completely normal and completely American and everybody knew them, but uh, apparently not. So I wrote about that, just being a bit different in school. And I, of course, because I grew up in an area where no matter who you are, you're an American and that's it. And if you say I'm Franco-American or I'm German-American, they're thinking that you immigrated from another country. They don't get the concept of, you know, there are people who have pride in their backgrounds. They just think of everybody as American and that's it. And that's completely fine, too, if you want to think about yourself as that. But there's just a lot of tension when you have somebody who's, you know, the hyphenated American. They really just don't get it. And so when I first heard Franco-American, it, that was something that came up. It was, I I used to think Franco-American. I didn't know that there was a Franco-American. So that's what I was 
trying to think about when I was writing this chapter and going into feeling disconnected and moving back to New Hampshire and trying to rediscover all of this stuff and rediscover that part of my family and trying to pick up French and trying to figure out ways to get us more into the public eye and not be such a quiet presence as we've been for so long. <laughs> so we talk about too much quiet presence. It's funny that you mentioned the whole meme thing because I have a crazy when I went to, I went to school in DC for my undergrad and I took a French class and my teacher was French from France and I used the word I think it was Pepe on one of my papers and she had no idea what that word was. She had never heard it before in her life. I was like, Meme, how do you not know what Meme Pepe is? I honestly didn't realize that it was just a French Canadian thing. It's not something that somebody from France would be expected to know. So I thought that was pretty cool. But how was the writing process for you? Oh, it was. Was it easy or was it something that you had to work at? No, it was something I really had to work at and think about how do I want to tell this? So I just kind of put all my thoughts out there, went back remembering this thing from childhood, remembering this thing from another time in my life and connecting that to what I wanted to say. And I also put in there ideas for getting, putting ourselves out there and becoming more noticeable in the public. And, you know, cause St. John Baptiste day should be as big as St. Patrick's day. There you go. So I read we're that in yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to make it happen. Actually, you know what? When this book comes out, that'd be a fun reason to have a big party where we all have some sweet outfits and show mm-hmm. up to hype our book. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah. Get Tim down because Tim has a chapter in it too. So that'd be very, very cool. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a really fun project. I'm anxious to see the, the finish. Yeah. Ones. Yeah. And I also wrote about my Meme and Pepe a bit in that too because they're such a big inspiration for me even though I don't remember my Pepe at all, I just always have felt so close to him when I've looked up information about him, when I look at the photos of him and same thing with my Meme. I, even though I kind of grew, I got, I got to grow up with her luckily a little bit and I've just always felt so close to the both of them. So this blog and writing this chapter, I really focused on, writing a little bit of their story too because they were both always very proud of being franco-american they each had a father from quebec their mothers were both franco-american born in new hampshire both grew up speaking french as i mentioned and they were both very proud of being franco-american they believed that speaking french was very important they always wanted to keep that alive. Like my Pepe was a member of the Richelieu Club in Nashua. I love it. And I have his membership card. I've contacted, they, they've had a little bit of a, a hiatus because of COVID, the Richelieu's here in Manch. But I've already been talking to him because I could speak well enough to get by at a Richelieu meeting now. So that would be way fun. Nice. They're still all in French, but mm-hmm. yeah, has a huge, because you mentioned a couple of different times that, you know, the whole disconnect because you didn't have the language. Have you tried at all to try to pick oh, it up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would love to speak French, and I do a lesson every day. That's what I've got. So oh, I'm, because, awesome. you know, in the past, I used to think, oh, 
I don't care. I don't need to speak French. I'll learn a little bit here and there for fun, but that's it. But the older I get, I realize that it's just so strange how within my mom's generation and me, the language has been completely lost. Yep. And so my meme and Pepe spoke fluent French and then my mom spoke some of it. And then you get to me and I know a few words. I know a few, I know how to say very simple sentences, but it just shocked me how much disconnect there is in just my mom's generation and then me. So that really put things into perspective for me. And so that got me motivated and inspired to actually learn how to speak French. Yeah, no, I like that. Because, I mean, the way I always think, obviously, I think you could be a Franco, not obvious, because people will fight me about it, some of them, but I think you can be a Franco-American, French-Canadian-American, whatever we want to call ourselves, um, without speaking French. But I just think there's so much more open to you if you do. Like, there's just a lot out there that, um, even still, my French is decent, but it's not where it needs to be. But there's so much history, culture out there once you have the language that is not available to you if you don't. So that's my Yeah, point. and my, uh, like my Pepe was born as Jean-Joseph. And when he was 18, he wanted to join the Air Force and he wanted to Americanize his name. So he became John-Joseph. And I know a lot of people would criticize that and say, well, he Americanized himself. He lost that Franco-American side of himself. But he was so proud of being an American as well as a Franco-American. And that's a big reason why they preferred that term over French Canadian. So he Americanized his name, but he never gave up his Franco-Americanness. He was always somebody who was so proud of that, but he also recognized that he was an American at the same time. And he served in France as an airplane mechanic. And when he was over there, he wasn't an official translator, but he certainly helped translate a lot of, a lot of information, (laughs) just, you know, just conversations. He could translate them and help people out that way. But um, yeah. So I, I mentioned them in my chapter and they're my inspiration for this blog as well, because they were, they recognized that they had a French Canadian background, but they're also so proud of being Americans that they Americanized themselves, but they never lost the French heritage. Yeah, I got you. What do you hope to do? What's the goals? What is your vision? We can leave on this for modern Francos. First thing, I would love to change up the format of the site. It's been the same since it started, but I am not great at website design. So I just kept the same theme up there, but I'd like to switch the theme up a bit. For content, I'm still kind of figuring that out. Like, do people like longer posts? Do they like more researched posts? Do they like something fun? Cool pictures. uh, (laughs) Or a combination. Yeah. Of, of those topics. I, I think I like a combination of all of those things, just going into topics that nobody else is going into. So we'll see some more fashion shows in my nice. backyard. Very nice. <laughs> and in my chapter, 
in French all around us, I kind of touched on kind of becoming our own media in a way, because uh, Timothy Boyer had told me that he can never get the local news to cover Putin Fest. So I wrote about, you know, we can report on these things ourselves. You know, back in the day, they had the Franco-American newspapers. Right. So we have why, why don't we try to come up with something like that or just on our own individually put it on our social media accounts? That's reporting in a way as well. For sure. Um, you don't have to go and do an actual report. If you just take a picture or a video and talk about what's happening and put it out there on social media and people see it, they'll be interested by it and want to check it out. And so I kind of touched on that. So that will, that, that'll be in modern Franco's future. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away. No, no exactly of course. what I'm thinking, but that, that's what I'm kind of thinking about. Well, this has been way, way fun. I'm glad we were able to finally make this happen. Finally, way overdue that you have your own episode. We've been talking, of course, Melody Desjardins. Melody, thank you so much for joining. This is cool. Merci for having me. I, it's great to finally have my moment here on the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. So I am very grateful and uh, very excited to see what we all do in the future with the Franco-American French Canadian community. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share. But the our culture will survive Each of us must choose How much to keep alive Each of us must choose How much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.